Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents. If you feel at any time you need support, please contact your local crisis centre. For suggested phone numbers for confidential support, please see the show notes for this episode on your app or on our website. The names of several individuals in this episode have been changed. Superbiker Motorsports in Chesney, South Carolina, wasn't just a motorcycle dealership. For bike enthusiasts in the small town and its surrounding area, the store was a place to hang out with like-minded people and even make friends. 30-year-old Scott Ponder, who owned the store, worked there with his best friend, Brian Lucas, who was 29. The dynamic between the pair had added to the friendly atmosphere. There were a number of regular customers who dropped by whenever they had spare time. That was exactly what Noel Lee was doing on the afternoon of Thursday, November 6, 2003. Noel had met Scott and Brian through the store and grew to consider them two of his closest friends. The trio were all planning to go to a motocross race the following night and Noel wanted to stop by the store to collect the tickets. He called the shop first at around 2.30pm to check if this suited. Scott's mother, 52-year-old Beverly Guy, answered the phone. She helped out at the dealership with bookkeeping and other administrative tasks. Beverly said it would be fine for Noel to drop in. At around 3pm, Noel pulled his BMW into the store's parking lot. Set back from a stretch of a two-lane highway called Paris Bridge Road, Superbike Motorsports was one of the only retail spaces in the vicinity. It bordered a cattle field and was surrounded by rolling hills and mostly residential buildings. Noel parked in one of the five car spaces directly in front of the shop. He immediately noticed something strange in the doorway of the dealership. Sprawled across the ground in a manner that propped the glass door open was a person. It was the store manager, Brian Lucas. Noel Lee got out of his car. Assuming Brian was playing some kind of prank, Noel moved towards the storefront when he abruptly stopped in his tracks. Partially hidden beneath the bonnet of the car he'd parked next to was the body of Scott Ponder. A pool of blood had formed around him. Closer up, Noel could see there was blood around Brian as well. The glass from the door held open by his body had been shattered. Realising the severity of the situation, Noel raced past Brian's body and into the store. He headed to the sales counter and used the dealership's phone to call 911. Then he saw something else. A third body was sprawled on the floor just outside the showroom in the middle of the dealership. It was Scott's mother, Beverly Guy. When Noel got through to a 911 operator, he cried out. Apparently everyone's been shot up here, 
Everybody's laying down in a pool of blood. His mum has been shot. The mechanic's been shot. Although Noel had only seen three bodies, he believed there would be a fourth somewhere as well. Chris Sherbert, the dealership's 26-year-old mechanic, was always working at this time of day, often in the garage area. Explaining this to the operator, Noel was told not to go looking for Chris. Instead, he should leave the store for his own safety and wait outside for the first responders to arrive. Noel did as he was told, exiting the dealership and walking across the road where he sat down in some grass. Police descended on Superbike Motorsports and secured the building. Scott Ponder, Brian Lucas and Beverly Guy were all deceased. As Noel Lee had predicted, the dealership's mechanic, Chris Sherbert, was also at the shop. He was found slumped over a black Suzuki motorcycle in the dealership's garage. He was dead too. All four victims had been shot multiple times with a 9mm pistol, including at least once in the chest and once in the forehead. The headshots implied that the killings had been a deliberate execution rather than a random mass shooting. The perpetrator had missed very few of their shots, even though some of their victims had been moving targets. 18 shell casings were recovered from the scene. They were dusted for prints, but yielded none. Nor were there any unidentified hand or fingerprints elsewhere in the store. Investigators also had no luck sourcing foreign DNA. The only clue they came across was a bill of sale for a black Suzuki motorcycle. It appeared as though Scott Ponder had been in the process of writing the bill when the shootings began. It didn't include a buyer's name or any other identifying information, such as a credit card number. The bill was for the same black Suzuki that mechanic Chris Sherbert had been working on. He had been prepping it for his new owner when he was shot and killed. To police, it seemed likely that the buyer of the black Suzuki and the shooter were one and the same. Based on the locations of the body, they put together a theory of how the slayings had likely unfolded. The shooter had left the store after arranging to buy the bike. Then they had sneaked into the garage via a rear door. They shot Chris Sherbert from behind while he was preparing the motorcycle for delivery. Next, the gunman headed through the showroom, encountering Beverly Guy and killing her. Scott Ponder and Brian Lucas had heard the gunshots and were fleeing the scene as the shooter pursued them. Brian was gunned down in the store's doorway. Scott had made it a little further outside to the parking lot. After incapacitating all four victims, the shooter had methodically walked to each one and fired a final shot into their foreheads. Investigators shut down Paris Bridge Road for three days as they processed the crime scene. The attack was thought to have taken place at around 2.45pm. Superbike Motorsports customer Noel Lee had called the store at around 2.30pm and spoken to Beverly Guy. 
She'd just dropped by to run some errands after taking her mother to a chemotherapy appointment. Beverly was planning to deposit some earnings at the bank but told Noel to drop in as Scott and Brian would both be there. By the time Noel arrived 30 minutes later, they were all dead. Although many vehicles drove by the store throughout the day, there weren't that many customers around in the middle of a weekday afternoon. Consequently, investigators didn't have many eyewitness accounts to go on. A couple who were known to deal drugs had been seen near the store near the time of the shooting. The woman had appeared upset and was heading away from Superbike Motorsports as her male partner chased after her. Officers managed to track the couple down but cleared them of any involvement in the crime. Several vehicles were also spotted in the area. One was red and an early 90s model, perhaps a Honda Civic or Chevy Cavalier. Another was a dark blue late model Chevrolet pickup truck with chrome exhaust and bed rails. And the third was a smaller, sportier, pale blue pickup truck. Officers asked for anyone with information about these vehicles to come forward. Very quickly, the murders at the Superbike Motorsports were being compared to another attack that had taken place five months earlier. 31 miles southwest of Chesney, in the town of Greer, there had been a robbery at Blue Ridge Savings Bank on May 16. A bank teller and two customers had been shot and killed, execution style, in a back room. Just like the Superbike shootings, the bank attack had taken place in the middle of the day with no witnesses around. It didn't appear to be random. And similar to the location of Superbike Motorsports, the Blue Ridge Savings Bank was near a highway in a relatively isolated area. A red car was seen driving to the bank at 1.24pm, six minutes before the shooting, and a red car was spotted near Superbike Motorsports as well. As of November 2003, the perpetrator of the bank shootings hadn't been caught or identified. However, while money was stolen from the bank in Greer, investigators knew almost immediately that the superbike slayings hadn't been part of a robbery. Nothing had been taken from the store, not even an envelope full of cash that had been left on a counter, presumably the deposit Beverly had been planning to make. The store also had numerous expensive items and a gold-plated award that Scott had received, none of which were touched. With robbery ruled out as a motive, investigators believed they were looking at a more personal attack. Scott Ponder had opened Superbike Motorsports in January 2001 and the business had gone from strength to strength. Scott hired his best friend, Brian Lucas, who was a skilled mechanic as well as a fellow motorcycle expert. The pair's genuine passion for motorbikes was appealing to customers. As one of the largest Suzuki dealerships across two counties, it attracted a lot of clientele in the area. But Scott wasn't satisfied with just selling locally. He utilised the internet to sell to customers all over the United States. 
At the beginning of the 21st century, online shopping was still in its infancy. This puts Scott ahead of the curve. As well as stocking motorcycles, Superbike Motorsports also sold ATVs and go-karts. This widened their customer base to outdoor enthusiasts and young families. In its first year, the store made more than $1 million in sales. This allowed Scott to expand quickly, remodelling and extending the dealership's garage and taking on more staff. Had Scott's success made his store the target of a rival business who was looking to get rid of their competition? There were also rumours that the killer could have been a disgruntled customer. One person who'd recently visited the dealership told the media that he'd seen buyers, quote, totally flip out upon receiving expensive bills. Investigators also heard stories that Superbike's prices were sometimes considered excessive. The dealership's customer base was examined, but no one stood out as suspicious. The investigative spotlight highlighted Noel Lee, the friend of Scott and Brian's who had discovered the crime scene. Noel had a cell phone, but had stepped over his friend's bodies and entered the store to call 911 from the phone inside. For all he knew, the killer might have still been in the building. Yet, Noel opted to go in anyway. He had also told the 911 operator that the dealership's mechanic had been shot even though he supposedly hadn't seen Chris Sherbert's body or entered the garage at all. Noel couldn't explain why he'd used the store's phone instead of his own, except that he hadn't been thinking clearly due to shock. He had presumed that Chris had been shot as well, because the other three employees all were. Noel was fingerprinted and had his car dusted for prints, He also took a polygraph test. None of these results gave officers any further reason to be suspicious. Noel Lee was cleared from the suspect list. Sheriff's deputies discovered that Chris Sherbert had been scheduled to front court several days later on Monday, November 10. He had been charged with some drug-related offences. Some suspected that he was planning to turn state's witness and testify against others in exchange for having the charges dropped. If this was the case, investigators wondered whether the murders were committed by someone who wanted to silence Chris. But this theory failed to gain momentum. Investigators were also interested to learn that Scott Ponder hadn't really known his father. He had been raised more by his stepfather, Terry Guy. Scott's biological father, William Dean Ponder, had an extensive rap sheet dating back to 1976. It included property crimes, weapons violations and drug and alcohol offences. In mid-1993, William had just been released from a stint in prison and was living in his parents' home on Paris Bridge Road directly across the street from the store his son would open almost a decade later. On the night of Saturday, August 28, 1993, 41-year-old William went out drinking with some friends at a nearby bar. He failed to return home. 
five days passed with no word from William. He was then reported missing. His friends claimed they'd dropped him off at the intersection of Paris Bridge and Martin Camp Roads, but William was never heard from again. Ten years later, as Scott Ponder turned 30 and was preparing to become a father himself, he began digging into his biological father's mysterious disappearance. It was known that Scott was trying to find his dad at around the time he was killed. Investigators wondered if perhaps somebody hadn't wanted him to succeed. Prior to his death, Scott had attempted to make a call from his cell phone, which was found with his body. He had managed to dial the numbers 333. It was theorised that he'd been trying to call the number listed as the third favourite contact in his phone, his wife, Melissa Brackman. Melissa was originally from Arizona. She'd met Scott several years earlier and the pair had commenced a romantic relationship after a period of being good friends. Melissa was currently seven weeks pregnant with the couple's first child. Just two days earlier, on Tuesday, November 4, Melissa and Scott had attended their first prenatal checkup together and had listened to their baby's heartbeat for the first time. On the morning of Thursday, November 6, Melissa stayed in bed a little longer to curb her morning sickness. After a sleep-in, she headed to work. She and Scott spoke on the phone a couple of times that day, the latest call being at around 2.15 or 2.30pm. Not long after that, Melissa headed out on a work errand when she received a call from Scott's credit card vendor. The vendor explained that she was trying to head over to Superbike Motorsports to perform a routine check on Scott's credit card machines, but there was a roadblock preventing access to the store. She had heard a rumour that there'd been a shooting in the area and wanted to check if everything was okay. After hearing this, Melissa immediately changed direction and headed to Superbike Motorsports. She repeatedly called Scott's cell phone and office number along the way, but none of her calls were answered. As Melissa drew closer to the store on Paris Bridge Road, she saw the area was swarming with police and media helicopters. Her efforts to get to the store were interrupted by officers who escorted her back home after learning who she was. When officials informed Melissa that Scott had been shot and killed at work, she asked to speak with Scott's mother, Beverly. It was then she was told that the entire staff of Superbike Motorsports were dead. By the time Melissa gave birth seven months later, the investigation into her husband's murder had stalled. Melissa had named her son Scott Jr. after his father, but everyone took to calling the little boy Scotty. Roughly a year after the shootings, investigators met with Melissa for a regular catch-up. She brought baby Scotty with her and had to change his diaper at one point. After the meeting, investigators retrieved the discarded diaper from the rubbish. Melissa was unaware that the catch-up was a ruse. 
Investigators had received a tip-off that Scott Ponda had been sterile and wasn't able to father children. They obtained a DNA sample from baby Scotty's diaper and compared it to Scott Ponda's DNA, which was taken from the crime scene. It wasn't a match. Melissa Brackman was asked to attend the Spartanburg County Sheriff's Department. This time, she should leave Scotty at home. Deputies ushered Melissa into a meeting room and shut the door. One deputy then informed her, Your son's DNA does not match up with his father's. Melissa appeared stunned by the revelation. She insisted that wasn't possible and offered to have Scotty's DNA tested again. Investigators agreed. The result was the same. However, a familial link was found to exist between Scotty and another victim from Superbike Motorsports. Testing confirmed that Scott's best friend, Brian Lucas, was the father of Melissa's son. Brian had also been married and had two sons with his wife, but his mother, Lorraine Lucas, had suspected he wasn't entirely happy in his relationship. About two weeks before the shootings, Lorraine had been visiting her son and noticed that his wife seemed to be pulling faces as Lorraine and Brian chatted. Brian grew unhappy about this and stated, This is my mother, I want you to treat her with respect. This led to an argument between the couple. Brian had also been looking at new houses without his wife's knowledge. On the day of his murder, he had gone to visit one property with a friend of his who was a realtor. It seemed plausible to investigators that Brian and Melissa had been having an affair. Perhaps the murders were the result of this secret somehow coming to light. Scott's stepfather, Terry Guy, was especially troubled by the infidelity rumours. He'd not only lost his stepson in the shooting, but his wife Beverly as well. Terry had suffered depression in the aftermath of their deaths and lost 70 pounds due to grief and stress. When he heard that Melissa could have been involved, he sat her down and asked, Did you have anything to do with it? If proof comes out that you did, wherever you're at, I'll come and get you and bring you back myself. Melissa was adamant she wasn't involved in the slayings and refused to admit that she'd been having an affair. For 18 months, investigators continued to pursue this line of inquiry. They ran more DNA tests and received another unexpected result. According to their samples, Beverly Guy hadn't actually been Scott Ponder's mother. They compared Beverly's DNA to Brian Lucas's sample, revealing a match. As investigators knew this couldn't be possible, they worked to discover what had happened. Scott and Brian's DNA samples had gotten mixed up when they were taken at the crime scene, with Scott's sample marked as Brian's and vice versa. This had likely happened because the two bodies were lying almost side by side. 
This revelation was hugely vindicating for Melissa Brackman. From the beginning, she had insisted that she'd never cheated on her husband and knew that he was her baby's father. Melissa suffered from endometriosis and Scott had a low sperm count, which had resulted in the couple needing medical assistance to conceive Scotty. Since the beginning of the investigation, she had been open and honest with the sheriff's deputies, handing over love letters she and Scott had written to each other and answering intimate questions about their relationship. Melissa had even agreed to be polygraphed. When investigators told her that both DNA tests proved that Scott wasn't Scotty's father, she was willing to have her husband's body exhumed so another sample could be taken. With the DNA bungle exposed, Melissa's name was cleared, but she still suffered the fallout from having been suspected. In the 18 months that had passed since this line of inquiry began, one of Scott's grandmothers had died believing he'd never fathered a child. Having lost her husband and her reputation, Melissa moved back to her home state of Arizona. Kelly Sisk was a member of the National Guard and a regular customer at Superbike Motorsports. On the day of the shootings, he decided to stop in at the store to make a payment on a go-kart he was buying for his four-year-old son. Kelly took his son with him and the pair arrived at the store around 2pm. They spent between 30 and 45 minutes wandering around the dealership floor admiring the latest bikes and ATVs. It was quiet with only one other customer in the store. The other customer was a white male who looked to be between 25 and 40 years old. He was about 6 feet tall and 170 to 200 pounds with dark feathered hair, thin lips, small eyes and a narrow jaw. The man was wearing jeans and a leather jacket which struck Kelly as odd because it was a warm day. The customer was admiring a black Suzuki motorcycle when Kelly saw Scott Ponder approach him. Hey, this is a good beginner's bike, Scott said. Kelly was confused. The bike was big and didn't look suitable for a beginner in his opinion, but he figured Scott would know better than he did. When Kelly and his son left a few minutes later, the customer was still chatting with Scott. By the time Kelly arrived at home, reports about the quadruple homicide at Superbike Motorsports were all over the news. Kelly was shocked. He couldn't believe that he'd just been there with his young child right before the attack unfolded. Kelly reported what he had seen to the Spartanburg County's Sheriff's Department, but it would take more than a month for investigators to track him down they eventually came to realise that Kelly Sisk was their most crucial witness. The man that he'd seen in the dealership that day was most likely the killer. Kelly helped them create a composite sketch of the suspect and the image was widely distributed. But Kelly wasn't happy with the picture. He didn't think it was a good likeness of the man at all. No solid leads resulted from the suspect sketch. 
It was featured on popular television programs such as America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. Tips would trickle in after each screening, but nothing that led to a break in the case. Former FBI agent and renowned serial killer profiler John Douglas was brought in to create a profile of the unknown suspect. In his opinion, the killer was mission-oriented. The entire attack was probably over within 45 seconds, and the motive was very different to other crimes Douglas had investigated. Quote, It's not a type of case, like other serial killers who I've interviewed, where it's a fantasy. This is revenge. This is retaliation. In 2012, an updated sketch of the suspect was released, which eyewitness Kelly Sisk said was a much better likeness of the mystery customer. It depicted a man with dark hair parted down the middle and a face that was wider at the top and narrowed towards his chin. His eyes were somewhat narrowed and his mouth turned downwards at the corners. In November 2013, the Sheriff's Office sent out a letter to their database of Superbike Motorsports customers in the hopes it might jog someone's memory. No one responded to them. More than a decade after the shootings, there had been over 750 leads that all fizzled out. But Sheriff Chuck Wright refused to admit defeat, telling the Spartanburg Herald Journal in 2015, I don't call it a cold case, I call it an old case, because we're still working on it. At the beginning of September 2016, a woman named Joanne Shiflett was worried about her son. 32-year-old Charlie Carver, who lived in Anderson County, South Carolina, hadn't replied to a text message Joanne had sent him. This was very out of character. The two normally spoke every day. When Joanne did some digging, she found out that she wasn't the only one who hadn't heard from Charlie lately. His father hadn't spoken to him in days either. Charlie and his new girlfriend, 30-year-old Alana Jones, had also failed to show up for a dinner scheduled with one of Alana's friends on Wednesday, August 31. Alana had been excited to introduce Charlie to her friend, so it seemed odd that they never arrived or explained their absence. The last time anyone had heard from the couple was during the day of August 31. When people tried to call them, their phones went straight to voicemail. Joanne Shiflett decided someone needed to check the apartment in Anderson where the couple lived. Charlie and Alana had only started dating a few months prior, but had already moved in together. Charlie's car was missing from the complex, but Alana's was still on site. On Saturday, September 3, Joanne asked the building's manager if she could check on her son. The manager agreed to perform a welfare check. She knocked on the apartment's door. Nobody answered. The manager let herself in. The couple weren't there, but all of their clothing and prescription medication had been left behind, along with Alana's glasses and contact lenses. 
Alana's dog, a Pomeranian named Romeo, was all alone in the residence with no food or water. It looked as though he'd been neglected for several days. Alana's loved ones were adamant that she would never take off without making sure Romeo was cared for. The dog was like a baby to her and she loved him dearly. Although the couple's friends and family knew something must be wrong for them to disappear without warning and fail to make contact, police were less concerned. They suspected the pair had just decided to go away together for a few days. Missing person reports were filed for both Alana and Charlie, but law enforcement in Anderson County said there was little else they could do. It didn't take long for the couple's loved ones to rally and start searching for themselves. Charlie's father wondered if perhaps they'd gotten into an accident in Charlie's 2002 White Pontiac Grand Prix. He searched creek beds and ravines throughout the county in case they'd gone off the road. Meanwhile, Charlie and Alana's friends started Facebook groups seeking information and handed out flyers plastered with the couple's descriptions. Alana was 5 foot 8 with short dyed red hair and green eyes. Charlie was 6 foot with brown hair, blue eyes, glasses and a neatly trimmed beard. Photos on the flyers showed the couple both individually and together with their smiling faces pressed together as Alana snapped a selfie. As time wore on, police joined in the search. They submitted applications to obtain data from the couple's cell phones, which had either died or been switched off. A month went by with no answers and people began to fear the worst, that the couple hadn't been in an accident, but had met with foul play. Charlie and Alana's parents all appeared on national television segments to raise awareness about the double missing persons case. Then, on Saturday, October 1, new posts suddenly appeared on Charlie Carver's Facebook page for the first time in over a month. It appeared he was using the account to log major life events retrospectively. He posted that on Friday, July 1, 2016, he and Alana discovered they were expecting a baby girl. Exactly one month later, on Monday, August 1, they bought a house. And a month after that, on Thursday, September 1, the couple got married. Rather than reassuring their friends and family, the posts on Charlie's page alarmed them. None of these milestones fit with what they knew about the couple, and they still hadn't heard anything from them. The posts didn't stop there. Although Charlie had never been a big social media user, odd memes and out-of-character comments were suddenly cropping up all over his page. One read, I wonder if I said hello, how many people would say it back? Let's try it. Hello. Another featured lyrics from the song Hotel California by The Eagles. Last thing I remember, I was running for the door. I had to find the passage back to the place I was before. Relax, said the nightman. We are programmed to receive. 
you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. One of the most disturbing posts read, Sometimes late at night, I dig a hole in the backyard to keep the nosy neighbours guessing. Charlie's friends were certain he wasn't making these posts and suspected that the person responsible for the couple's disappearance was behind them. They began commenting on the posts. Is that what you did to Alana and the real Charlie? asked one person. Another added, Are you hinting at what you did with them? You know it's sad that someone like you is using his Facebook page when his family and friends are worried about both him and Alana. Whoever was using Charlie's account didn't answer these questions, but continued to like and share posts about the missing couple that had been made by their families. Some people close to Charlie suspected they knew who was behind the disturbing posts. When Charlie and Alana got together, he had been going through an acrimonious divorce. Charlie and his ex-wife, Nicole Nunez, hadn't had a good relationship. When he decided they needed to split up, Nicole was upset about it. Her distress only increased when she found out about Charlie's new relationship with Alana. Nicole began stalking the couple. One day, Charlie returned home to their apartment to find Nicole inside. He'd confided in his father about the incidents and said he was too scared to take further action against Nicole. He was worried that if he was too harsh, something bad would happen. On Wednesday, August 31, the last day anyone had seen or heard from Charlie and Alana, Nicole made a strange Facebook post that read, My beloved husband, rest in peace. Charlie's loved ones noticed that the posts that started appearing on his page from Saturday, October 1, featured spelling and grammatical errors that Nicole was known to make. In one comment directed at another Facebook user, the person using Charlie's account asked how the other individual knew my hubby. Charlie's mother, Joanne, had also received text messages from Nicole stating, Your son never wants to see you again. He contacted me. They're at the beach. One day, a representative at the telecommunications company AT&T received a call from the lead investigator on the Charlie Carver and Alana Jones case. The investigator was hoping to find out where and when Charlie's cell phone had last pinged signal towers. When the AT&T employee asked for the investigator to spell out their name, the investigator failed to do so correctly. They were also unable to provide a badge number. Suspicious, the AT&T representative placed the investigator on hold and made a call to the police. Officers confirmed that the call was not legitimate and began to trace where it had come from. It was made by Charlie Carver's ex-wife, Nicole Nunez. Three days later, Nicole was arrested and charged with impersonating a police officer. Yet, despite this development, 
investigators couldn't find any evidence connecting Nicole with the couple's disappearance. Meanwhile, the case's real investigators finally had a breakthrough when they actually did receive the data from Charlie and Alana's cell phones. Now they were able to see which towers the phones had connected to in the hours and minutes before their batteries died. From Wednesday August 31, both phones had pinged a tower in the nearby town of Woodruff, which was located roughly 50 miles northeast of Anderson in neighbouring Spartanburg County. Alana's phone had continued to connect to the tower up until Friday September 2, which was two days after the couple were last seen. The tower was in the vicinity of a rural 95-acre property. This was significant, as Anderson County investigators had recently received a tip-off that Alana Jones was buried on a 100-acre property in Woodruff. The 95-acre property was the only one in the area that fit the bill. Investigators flew a helicopter overhead to get a better look, but saw no sign of the couple or Charlie's white Pontiac Grand Prix. Instead, they saw dense woodland and ravines, as well as several small buildings. There was no electricity there, just some solar panels. Investigators began to wonder if they were looking at a grow house, a term for a property used for the production of cannabis or other illicit substances. As the property was privately owned, they had to obtain a search warrant to take a closer look on foot. On the morning of Thursday, November 3, sheriff's deputies headed out to the rural property armed with a warrant. A tall chain-link fence surrounded most of the farm with signs attached that read, Warning, Private Property, No Trespassing. It was rare to see a fence like this on similar properties in the area. A wide gravel path led from the main road into the property's entrance and snaked through the privately owned land. Investigators made their way along the path. Most of the property was wooded, but they observed a few buildings as they went. There was a gardening shed, a workshop garage with what looked like an apartment on top, and a 30-foot long green shipping container. As police meticulously combed through the woodland, they suddenly made a discovery inside a ravine. A white car that was smeared with what looked like brown paint had been dumped in the sloping space. Some branches and foliage had been placed on top of it, as though whoever had left the vehicle there was trying to camouflage it. Investigators identified the car as Charlie Carver's Pontiac Grand Prix. The discovery confirmed that the couple had been at the property. Next, the deputies searched the buildings. No one was on the premises as officers examined the garage with the first floor apartment. On the walls of the upstairs loft apartment were several heavy chains with padlocks attached. Next, they looked at the shed before heading towards the shipping container. It was what is known as a Connex box, a kind of cargo carrier that the US Army had started using during the Korean War. 
There were five heavy padlocks on the Connex box, preventing the deputies from opening it up. Realising there must be something important inside if someone was so determined to keep it locked, the officers began trying to remove one of the locks by hitting it repeatedly with a sledgehammer. For 15 minutes they tried to break it, but it wouldn't open. Then, one of the deputies suddenly called out, Stop! She thought she could hear a banging from inside the container. Her colleagues stopped and listened. They heard something too, though it wasn't clear if it was coming from the woods or the container. Two of the investigators made their way along the right side of the container where the noise was louder. One of them knocked on the exterior steel wall. A knock came back in reply and a voice screamed, Help me, get me out of here. Realising someone was inside the shipping container, the deputies felt an overwhelming sense of urgency. Using a circular power saw and a crowbar they found on the property, they cut through the steel padlocks and forced open the container doors. Inside was a long and totally dark hallway. Using flashlights to see, they passed a tall, narrow cage and some storage shelves that lined either side of the container. Towards the back of the container, a woman wearing grey tracksuit pants and a black sweater was sitting on a mattress with her legs outstretched. She held her hands above her head to show she was unarmed. Her wrists were handcuffed together. One of her ankles was cuffed to a chain that was attached to the wall. Her neck had a heavy padlocked chain around it as well, which was also attached to the wall. The woman was Alana Jones. Footage of the rescue was captured by the deputies. Just a girl. Just a girl, just a girl. Just How are you, honey? This we're is this, bolt cutters. This is our best. He's a paramedic. Oh, yeah. Okay, we're going to get you out of there, okay? Just hang loose for me. Anybody got a, I need a handcuff key. Handcuff key. I don't I got a ranker. Hold up. Y'all slide back. Hold on. He's, He's got a light. We got to let you take pictures. Pictures. Randy, let, okay. let me see your light, Brandon. You can, you can put your hand down for dog. You're okay. We're here, okay? Yes, sir. Just, just sit back. Light on or off? You're fine. We'll get the rest of it here. Let's get her out of here. Okay. We're getting bolt cutters, honey. Don't, don't. You got pictures of the cuffs? No, hold on. Bolt cutters. It's both feet. Just one. It's attached to a chain from okay. the wall. Okay. And my neck's attached to the wall up here. Okay. All right. All right, we'll get you out here, okay? You got a handcuff, kid. I got my mine's in my closet. I got another one. I'm going to get that. Don't be big. Bolt cutter. Just hit the chain right there. Loose. Just no, just right there at her hand, Brandon. We'll get it off. We'll get it off here. Cut it right here. Do you know where your buddy is? Charlie? Yes. He shot him. He shot him? Who did? Who Todd Colehep shot Charlie Carver three times in the chest, wrapped him in a blue tarp, put him in the bucket of the tractor, locked me down here, and I never seen him again. Okay. He says he's dead and buried. He says there's several bodies dead and buried out here, and he okay. says that the dogs will be ruined if they go looking because they're red pepper. We're going to step you up, sweetie. 
As the deputies used bolt cutters to free Alana from her restraints, she told them that the man responsible for her ordeal was the owner of the property. His name was Todd Kolhap. Alana said Kolhap had shot her boyfriend Charlie three times in the chest, then wrapped his body in a blue tarp. Using a tractor, he'd moved Charlie to another location of the property and buried him. Alana never saw Charlie again. Kolhap had told Alana he had other bodies hidden on the property as well. He'd scattered red peppers around, which he thought would mask the scent of human remains from police dogs. Deputies led Alana out of the container and into an ambulance so she could be taken to a hospital for treatment. As she was being transported to the hospital, investigators continued to question her. Alana Jones had met Todd Kolhap through a mutual friend in around 2011. The two became Facebook friends and occasionally stayed in touch. Eventually, Alana started cleaning some of the properties listed by Kolhap's agency for extra cash. On Wednesday, August 31, she and Charlie had gone to the rural property after Kolhap offered to pay them to clear some brush. When they arrived, he'd given them hedge clippers and a bottle of water before pointing out the areas that needed tidying. Kolhap then went into the garage to get something. When he returned, he was holding a gun. Before the couple could register what was going on, Kolhap shot and killed Charlie. As Alana had stared down at her boyfriend's body in shock, Kolhap grabbed her from behind, handcuffed her and bound her ankles. He apologised about killing Charlie but said he had to let Alana know he was serious. Kolhap made her watch as he wrapped Charlie's body in the tarp. Then he led her to the storage container where she was forced to stay for the next two months. Alana said she was kept chained up almost the entire time. Kolhap would visit her at the property between 1 and 3pm every day and move her from the shipping container to the apartment. Then he would beat her and, quote, make me do whatever he wanted sexually before transferring her back to the container. He'd leave for a while before returning between 5 and 7pm and repeating the process all over again. If Alana said no to any sex acts Kolhap wanted to do, he wouldn't physically force her because he claimed he didn't believe in rape. But Alana said he made it very well known why she was there and she knew that if she didn't submit to his demands, he would shoot her too. Sometimes Kolhap would let Alana walk around outside for a little bit. He liked to show her the makeshift grave where he had buried Charlie's body. A second empty grave lay next to it. Kolhap told Alana if she ran away, she would end up there too. Kolhap said Alana was beautiful and that's why he'd chosen her. He reassured her that one day Stockholm Syndrome would kick in and she would be happy living with him too. 
he would build a special house with a soundproof room where she would be kept permanently. Kolhep had bragged to Alana that he was a serial killer and a mass murderer. He claimed that his victims numbered in the high two digits, but he planned to kill more because he dreamed of taking hundreds of lives. Todd Kolhep had always been a troubled child. After his parents divorced in 1973 when he was two, he was raised by his mother Regina in South Carolina. Regina noticed how he struggled to play with his peers at preschool. Often, he would just sit in a corner. The only way he seemed capable of interacting with them was in an angry manner. As he grew older, his behaviour worsened. Kolhep would deliberately damage other students' work and was kicked out of the Boy Scouts for repeatedly misbehaving. When he asked his mother and stepfather for a pet gerbil, they told him no as he already had a goldfish. Kolhep responded by pouring Clorox bleach into the fish tank, which his parents thought he did deliberately to kill the fish. Kolhep would always insist he'd just been cleaning the tank and didn't understand that bleach was toxic. Another time, he was reported to have shot at a dog with a BB gun. By the time Kolhep was nine years old, his reputation for having an explosive temper and fixation with sexual content was cemented. When people did something he didn't like, he lashed out. Once, when his mother bought him a new set of bedroom furniture, he destroyed it all with a claw hammer. Another time, he attacked a girl on his school bus after she said something that made him angry and stabbed her in the leg. His mother Regina sent him to therapy and a mental health hospital, but his behaviour didn't improve. Kolhep hated his stepfather and repeatedly asked if he could go and live with his biological father in Arizona. He'd spent a summer with his father at age 12 after not having seen him in eight years. Regina began to wonder if her son's issues were stemming from not knowing his dad. When Kolhep was in his early teens, Regina finally caved and allowed him to move to Arizona. On the evening of Tuesday, November 25, 1986, 14-year-old Katie was at home in Tempe, Arizona, babysitting her two younger siblings. Her five-year-old brother and three-year-old sister were both sleeping, so it was an easy job. Katie was sitting on a love seat studying when the doorbell rang. She answered it and found 15-year-old Todd Kolhep, who lived three doors down, standing on her doorstep. He explained that another boy who Katie had a crush on was around the corner and wanted to talk to her, but Katie refused to leave. She explained that she was babysitting and shut the front door. Yet, Kolhap wouldn't leave. After repeatedly trying to coax Katie outside, he went around the back of her house to the rear door and said, Just come out. Hoping that if she did as he asked, he would finally leave, Katie stepped outside. Kolhap pulled out a gun and held it to her head, stating, You're coming with me. 
At gunpoint, he forced her out of her backyard and into an alley that ran behind the row of houses. Katie didn't even have shoes on and could feel stones and broken glass pressing into her bare feet. Angry and terrified, she suddenly fought back, grabbing the barrel of the gun. In response, Kolhep pulled the trigger. The gun misfired. If it had gone off, the bullet would have struck Katie in the head. Realising Kolhep wouldn't hesitate to kill her, Katie didn't fight back again. At Kolhep's urging, she walked into his home, where he was staying alone while his father was away on a business trip. Kolhep forced Katie into his bedroom, then bound her hands with rope and put duct tape over her mouth. He held a knife to her throat and raped her. Back at Katie's house, her little brother woke up and was scared to find his sister missing. The five-year-old boy called 911 and soon police and their parents arrived at the property. As they were gathered inside, Katie appeared at the back door. Kolhap had seen the police car lights from his bedroom window and panicked. Katie had begged to be allowed to leave, saying she would just tell the police they'd been out looking for a missing dog. Kolhap eventually agreed, but said that if she said anything about what really happened, he would murder her whole family. Although Katie initially told her parents and the police that she'd been looking for a dog, they could see from her demeanour that something terrible had happened. After some coaxing, Katie began to cry and told the truth. Officers immediately went to Kolhap's house to arrest him. Kolhap answered the door with a 22 caliber rifle behind his back. Pulling out her own handgun, an officer demanded he leave the house immediately or she would shoot him. Kolhap did as he was told, then asked, I just need to know how much I am going to get for this. Although he was only 15, Kolhap was charged as an adult. He agreed to plead guilty to kidnapping if the sexual assault charge was dropped to avoid having to go to trial. After a court-ordered psychological assessment, Kolhap was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. He said that he'd attacked Katie because he was angry and wanted to rebel against his often absent father. Kolhap's mother Regina sent a letter requesting leniency in sentencing, writing, They don't stop to think that he even walked the girl home. Does that sound like a dangerous criminal? Despite her request, the judge gave Kolhap 15 years to be served in an adult prison in Arizona. The adult probation officer noted that Todd Kolhap was, quote, the type of individual, one with little or no conscience, who presents the greatest risk to the community. In November 2001, Kolhap was released from prison at the age of 30. It wasn't long before he moved back to South Carolina. Although he had to add his name to the state's sex offender registry, Kolhap also set about rebuilding his life. 
He worked as a graphic designer using vocational training he'd completed in prison and obtained a business degree from the University of South Carolina Upstate. In 2006, he applied for a South Carolina real estate license. The application didn't require a criminal background check, but applicants did have to note any convictions themselves. Colhep explained away his felony conviction as being due to a heated breakup he'd had with his girlfriend. During the argument, Colhep's dog escaped and the two teenagers had to go looking for it. Meanwhile, his girlfriend's parents hadn't known where their daughter was and called the police. I was charged with the felony of kidnapping due to the fact that I did have a firearm on me, regardless that she didn't know about it, and I had told her not to move while we talked this out, Colhap wrote. At this time, Arizona was coming down very hard on minors and anything to do with firearms due to the heavy gang activity out there, and I received a sentence of 15 years, for which I served every day, no parole required. His application was approved, and by 2008, Colhep was a successful real estate agent. The following year, he registered his own company, Todd Colhep and Associates. The business grew with about a dozen agents on staff. Colhep began driving BMWs and owned multiple properties, two cars, and a motorbike. In 2013, he achieved a childhood dream by obtaining his pilot's license. His life appeared to be successful. But there were cracks in the facade. Colhep was known to boast about his wealth and how he was an expert with firearms. He openly discussed his sex offender status while lying about how he'd received it. Some potential clients instinctively found him creepy and off-putting. At work, he was known for openly watching pornography in his office. He had a dark sense of humour and talked about how he chased people off his property while wearing night vision goggles and carrying guns equipped with silencers. According to Colhap, he owned an arsenal of weapons even though in South Carolina it is illegal for violent felons to own firearms. In the close-knit neighbourhood where he lived, Colhap kept to himself. In 2014, he bought the sprawling 95-acre property in Woodruff where Alana Jones would be found two years later. Colhap paid $80,000 to install an expansive chain-link fence and installed deer cameras and bear traps throughout the property. These weren't intended to deter animals, but humans. An Amazon account in Todd Colhap's name revealed that around the same time he'd bought padlocks, knives, targets, tactical gear and gun accessories. He often left reviews for these items that hinted at how he intended to use them. When reviewing a knife, he wrote, Haven't stabbed anyone yet, but I am keeping the dream alive, and when I do, it will be with a quality tool like this. For a padlock, he wrote, Works great. Also, if someone talks back, 
go old school on them by putting this in a sock and beating them. They will not appreciate the hardened steel like you will. The review for another set of padlocks made a reference similar to one someone had posted on Charlie Carver's Facebook page while posing as him. Quote, Now my locks have locks. Place is Hotel California now. When investigators traced Alana's cell phone to the vicinity of the rural property owned by Colhab, they'd applied for his cell phone data too. They saw that it had been in the same area repeatedly during the two months that Alana and Charlie were missing. This was enough for a search warrant to be granted. While one team of investigators went to the rural property, another group headed to the house where Colhap lived, just eight miles away. Colhap answered the front door to his red brick home dressed in a blue t-shirt and shorts. Deputies informed him that they had information indicating he was the last person to have seen missing couple Alana Jones and Charlie Carver and had a search warrant for his other property. Colhap didn't seem bothered and sat on a chair in his house's foyer while making small talk with the investigators. One deputy received a call and went outside to take it. It was a colleague who was at Colhap's rural property informing him how they'd found Alana chained up in a storage container. The deputy went back inside and confronted Colhap with this information. Colhap responded by tilting his head to one side and saying, Excuse me? The deputy continued, She has told us that you shot and killed Charlie. Colhap was informed that he was being arrested. When asked where Charlie's body was and why he had kidnapped Alana, Colhap replied, I want an attorney. Probably a good thing, the deputy retorted, before having Colhap put in the back of a police vehicle. It didn't take authorities long to recover Charlie Carver's body from a shallow grave on the property. Once Todd Colhap learned the body had been found, he agreed to make a full confession, with some conditions. He wanted to talk to his mother before making any more statements, and asked investigators to pass along a special picture to her. He also wanted to transfer some money to the daughter of a friend to help pay her college tuition. The investigators agreed to these terms. Colhap said he'd targeted Alana and Charlie because he was angry with Alana. He confirmed things she had already told investigators. When they asked if the empty, freshly dug grave next to Charlie's had been intended for Alana, he said yes, adding, she came real close. Really, asked one investigator. She has no idea, Colhap replied more than once. Colhep agreed to take investigators to the place on his property where he'd buried two more bodies. Both were so badly decomposed that they had to be identified from their tattoos and other identifying features. 
They were married couple Johnny and Megan Coxie, who'd lived in Spartanburg and had a son together. 26-year-old Megan had a history of heroin usage and was charged with neglect in late 2015 when her child tested positive for the drug. Both she and Johnny were placed in jail until Megan asked her mother to bond her out so she could work a job. She wanted to fix her life and provide for her family. Her mother agreed, but never heard from Megan again. Both she and Johnny were reported missing on Tuesday, December 22, 2015. With few leads, the case never really got off the ground. It turned out that Colehab had met 26-year-old Megan at a waffle house where she waited tables and he liked to lurk. He gained a reputation for leaving generous tips and inviting waitresses back to his home. Colehap had creeped out most of the female staff so much that one of the male cooks started taking his orders instead. Colehap had offered Megan money to clean his property. This was the job she had told her mother about. Colehap told the deputies that Johnny had jumped him with a knife, trying to rob him once they were out at the property. He'd killed Johnny in self-defence by shooting him in the chest. Colehap began to panic as he knew he wasn't allowed to own guns due to his criminal record and also had illegal drugs on the property. Unsure of what to do with Megan, he put her in the shipping container. Colehap claimed that sometimes Megan was calm, but other times she went, quote, batshit crazy. He insisted that he hadn't sexually assaulted Megan, but investigators were unconvinced. Colehap said that after five or six days, he struck a deal with Megan. He would give her $4,000 and drive her to Tennessee, then they would go their separate ways. He said that Megan was happy as hell with this arrangement, but when Colehap checked on her the next day, she tried to burn down the shipping container and was, quote, going nuts. He walked her outside of the container, then shot her in the back of the head. Colehap assured the investigators that the similarities between the attacks against the two couples were purely coincidental. The land was supposed to be my sanctuary, not my killing field, he laughed. Yet, it quickly became clear that Colehap's violent acts were not limited to his rural property in Woodruff. Following Alana Jones's rescue from the shipping container, she told a police officer that Colehap had bragged about being a serial killer and mass murderer. Then she added, He also told me that a few years back, he walked into a bike shop in Anderson and shot four people. Although Alana thought the shop was in Anderson and not Chesney, there was little doubt what case Colehap had been referring to. The massacre at Superbike Motorsports was the most notorious cold case in Spartanburg County, the same county where Colehap had lived and committed his other crimes. Colehap also bore an uncanny resemblance to the second sketch that had been made of the suspect, with the same downturned mouth and squinting eyes, 
Investigators asked Kolheb to walk them through his dealings with the store. In 2003, Todd Kolheb was in his early 30s and two years out of prison. He was studying at Greenville Technical College and that same year he also bought a motorcycle from Superbike Motorsports. Kolheb soon realised that the bike was too big for an inexperienced motorcyclist like him. He'd only owned it for two weeks when it was stolen from out the front of the apartment complex where he lived. Kolhep received an insurance payout and decided to buy another bike. He started visiting Superbike Motorsports again to look at different models. After hearing Kolhep planned to replace his stolen bike, the manager Brian Lucas said to him, Great, now we'll have another one to go pick up. Kolhep interpreted this to mean that the store was behind the theft of his first bike. He left the store but continued to stew about what Brian had said. Kolhep became angrier and angrier. He continued to visit Superbike Motorsports, where he would sit on the store's bikes and eavesdrop on Scott Ponder and Brian Lucas, quote, basically talk trash. Eventually, Kolhep decided to purchase a Beretta 9mm pistol and went back to the store one final time on the afternoon of Thursday, November 6, 2003. He inspected some bikes while scoping out the store and trying to ensure that Scott, Brian and mechanic Chris Sherbert were all there. He'd deliberately chosen a quiet time of day as he wanted no other customers around. Quote, Collateral damage is not cool. Kolhep wasn't thrilled when Scott's mother, Beverly Guy, arrived, telling investigators, I prefer not to shoot women if I can. But her presence didn't deter him, and finally, when all four store employees were the only other people in the building, Kolhep told them he wanted to buy a particular bike. Scott and Brian began sorting out the paperwork while Chris Sherbert took the motorcycle out the back to prep it. After a few minutes, Kolhep followed him to the mechanics area. He pulled out his pistol and shot Chris twice in the chest. Chris fell to the ground and lay still. Kolhep then headed towards the front of the building just as Scott Brian and Beverly all moved to the mechanics area to investigate the sound they'd just heard. The three of them stood in front of Kolhap. As Beverly was the closest, he shot her two or three times in the chest. As she fell, Scott and Brian ran for the door. As they ran, Kolhap shot Brian in the back, then aimed at Scott as he was reaching the parking lot. After all four victims had fallen, Kolhap went to each body and shot them in the forehead. This was a detail investigators had withheld from the press and convinced them that Kolhap was telling the truth. A check would reveal his name had also been in the store's customer database that the original investigators had received. On the 10th anniversary of the murders, Kolhap had received one of the many letters that were sent out to Superbike customers asking if he knew anything about the crime. 
he had never replied. Kolhap described the slayings as being like playing a video game and used military-style language to detail each action. He boasted about how quick the mass shooting had been, telling the interviewing detectives, I cleared that building in under 30 seconds. I'm sorry, but you guys would have been proud. Scott, Brian and Beverly's loved ones were shocked to hear the case had finally been solved 13 years later. Tom Lucas, the father of Brian Lucas, had become an advocate for families in the area who lived with unsolved crimes. He had been gathered with some of them the day before Culhep confessed and had sensed something powerful at the time. When Tom and his wife Lorraine received a call the following day to say the perpetrator was in custody, he couldn't believe it. Lorraine would later say she went completely numb. Scott Ponder's wife, Melissa Brackman, was phoned by a detective who she had a good relationship with. He instructed her to sit down, then said, We got him. Melissa began to cry. She had made peace with the fact that she might never know who killed her husband and the father of her son, Scotty, who was now nearly 13 years old. Terry Guy, Beverly's husband and Scott's stepfather, was also relieved, but at the same time, he empathised with Colhep's family. Quote, My emotions are running from joy to crying, even feeling sorry for the family of Colhep. I feel for them. There was less relief for the families of Charlie Carver, Johnny Coxie and Megan Coxie, who were only just learning that their loved ones were dead. A close friend of Johnny Coxie's mother, Cindy, issued a statement on her behalf, stating, Cindy came about a year ago requesting prayer for her son Johnny and his wife Megan who were missing. We have been praying for about a year now that they would be found and we would know what happened. Today, they received the news. The family is in shock, grieving and are not comfortable talking to anyone at this time. They have asked for people to please try and understand and give them time to heal. Todd Colhap agreed to plead guilty to seven counts of murder, two kidnapping charges and one count of criminal sexual assault. In exchange for his plea, prosecutors took the death penalty off the table. On Friday, May 26, 2017, Colhap was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Surviving victim Alana Jones did not attend due to an ongoing struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, but the courtroom was packed with family members of those who'd been killed. They addressed him in turn. In an emotional voice, Scott Ponder's wife, Melissa Brackman, stated, I have missed motorcycle riding on the back of his bike, having him there to rub my pregnant belly to feel Scott Jr. kick and take him bike riding, motorcycle riding. I lost so much. Her son Scott Jr., who had just finished 7th grade, said, 
I'm always going to wonder what it would have been like if my dad was here. Megan Coxey's mother, Mary, cried as she spoke of how her seven-year-old grandson had looked for his mother everywhere after she disappeared. Then the day came when we found out where his mum was. It was one of the worst days of our lives to tell him that his mum was dead. Outside court, Charlie Carver's parents spoke of how they hoped to heal now that their son's killer was behind bars. His mother Joanne said that for a while she couldn't think of Todd Colehep without feeling furious, but now she just considered him a sad man. At Colehep's sentencing, his lawyers had assured the court that he had no other victims, but some found this hard to believe. His first serious crime had been committed when he was just 15 and his second followed only two years after his release from prison. It seemed unlikely that a repeat offender with a violent streak and an easily triggered inferiority complex had been a law-abiding citizen between late 2003 when he committed the Superbike Massacre and 2015 when he murdered Johnny and Megan Coxey. When he provided a detailed confession to investigators, he claimed that he'd also shot and killed a boy in Tempe, Arizona when he was 14 as part of a gang initiation. Colehep said he couldn't recall any names. Investigators in Arizona looked into this claim but weren't able to verify it. They also looked into other unsolved homicides and missing persons cases between 1983 to 1986 the years Colehab was living in the area. Nothing else appears to have been linked to him. But there may have been another unsolved rape in Tempe that Colehab committed. 16 days before Colehab abducted and raped his neighbour Katie in 1986, a college student in her early 20s was attacked in her home. She lived just blocks away from Colehab. In the early hours of the morning, she awoke to a man standing over her, sticking duct tape on her mouth. He bound and then raped her. The woman would later say he was like an awkward, fumbly teenager, as though he didn't know what he was doing. Katie later described him the same way. After the assault, the man whispered that he would kill the woman if she told the police then left. The victim did call police, however, and they came over to take a statement and evidence. She never heard from them again, and records show the evidence was destroyed two years later. Decades later, the story of Todd Colehep's serial killings and previous rape conviction made national news, and the victim wondered if he was responsible for the crime against her as well. Alana Jones said Colehep had bragged that his victims numbered in the high double digits, though it wasn't clear if this was just him boasting. Following his sentencing in 2017, he told authorities in South Carolina that he'd actually killed two more people. He'd buried them near Interstate 26 in Spartanburg County and agreed to take investigators to the spot. 
As of late 2022, this claim has not been confirmed. There have been no updates as to whether any remains were found. In 2018, a South Carolina man named Dustin Lawson pleaded guilty to 36 federal firearms charges after admitting he'd illegally sold guns and silencers to Todd Colhab. Lawson had been aware that Colhab had a previous felony conviction and wasn't permitted to own firearms. He was sentenced to seven years and four months in prison. Alana Jones and a number of victims' family members filed civil suits against Todd Colhap, seeking damages. A judge ordered that Colhap pay Alana $6.3 million. Other victims were also awarded significant amounts. Colhap's various assets were auctioned off and the money distributed amongst the victims, but his assets weren't enough to cover the amount he'd been ordered to pay. To this day, the families of Colhap's victims communicate in a group chat together. Those who lost loved ones in the Superbike Motorsports murders have offered support to the families of Colhap's later victims. Terry Guy, who lost both his wife and stepson in the Superbike murders, formed a strong bond with the sister of victim Brian Lucas. The two grieved together and found comfort in each other. Eventually, they fell in love and married. For Melissa Brackman, there was a lot of sorrow in the fact that her husband never got to meet his son, Scotty. But Scotty was also a way for Scott to live on, as Melissa told a journalist from the CBS program 48 Hours, quote, I got to hold a piece of him again. I had his flesh and blood with me. (laughs) 